with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Um, I'm really excited about our study. Obviously, I get very excited when I do an in-depth Bible study. But tonight, I want to take you to chapter 2 of Daniel. And let me tell you something. This whole book is just loaded with information. So what I want to do is I want to do a couple things. I want to teach you the main gist of Daniel, but I also want to take you through it as a, as a story, kind of like a, a drama in a movie so you can understand and be in the mind of Daniel as he's going through the things in his very life. So tonight we begin with chapter 2, and man, what a chapter it is. It is one of the greatest of the great prophecies of the Bible. In it, Jehovah God gives the entire, and I do mean entire history of the human race in advance. Now think about it. You're going to study a chapter, you're going to study a book that the entire history of the human race is being given from 600 B.C. until at least 2012 and beyond and counting. So the whole scope of Daniel is to give us this plan of God for the ages. It's very inclusive, much more inclusive than Revelation is. Revelation just zeroes in on the last days. But this gives you the entire scope of the history of mankind. So it is an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive parallel to what we're doing. And it's right, 2,612 years at least and counting. Uh, now here is a general overview of the gist of the book of Daniel. And let me warn you, it's one very heavy prophecy-packed book. Now I promise you I will break it down so that we all understand it and I will give it to you in a way where we can see the application for ourselves. Because it's no good just studying a book and studying the words if we don't apply it to ourselves. Somebody say amen. If you don't see where you fit in it in your own daily life. So we will definitely do that. Let me give you the uh, couple chapters, all the chapters to show you what it is. Daniel chapter 1 is Daniel and his companions are taken to Babylon. We've already gone through that. Tonight, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, the image. We will not get to that tonight, but we will get to half of that chapter, a little more than half. And then next week, we will save that heavy-duty dream. By the way, this is the most powerful dream that has ever been given to man. And we'll save it for next week. Uh, then chapter 3, Daniel's account of Israeli persecution in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 4, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's second dream which most people don't realize, but he does have a second dream. Five, Daniel tells of Belshazzar's overthrow. Uh, you'll remember those quotes, mine, mine, tikel, you farsin, which is uh, the handwriting on the wall. Uh, Daniel chapter six, Daniel cast into the den of lions. Chapter seven, vision of four beasts. These are Daniel's vision, world empires. Chapter eight, Daniel's vision of the ram goat, which is the antichrist in his rise. If you want to know about Antichrist, let me tell you something. Da Daniel chapter 8 will give you an MO on, an on Antichrist and who he is. You can easily, by reading chapter 8, take people that they've said to the Antichrist and scratch them off your list because he gives us specifics on who he's going to be. Most people miss it. Uh, Gabriel tells Daniel chapter 9 of God's timetable for Israel, 70 weeks. It will tell you that God has actually given us dates. And uh, you'll, we'll see those as we get there. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's glorious vision of angels and the glorified Christ and intense spiritual warfare. Daniel chapter 11, Daniel's given a detailed history of the overthrow of the world nations from his day forward till the end of times. Daniel chapter 12, the resurrections of the end times and the outcome of the end of times. So it's a powerful book. It is an amazing book. And let me give you our outline for tonight and, maybe, and next week, Lord willing. The insecurity of man. How many of you know man is insecure? How many of you know uh, Nebuchadnezzar was insecure? How many of you know the person sitting next to you is insecure? How many of you know the person sitting in your clothes is insecure? 
knocking on heaven's door, which will be Daniel chapter 12, 2, verses 14 and 13. And finally, thy kingdom come, Daniel chapter 2. So uh, the last part of it. So let's begin. I'll call this chapter, Oh, What a Night, because that's what it's going to be. Man's insecurity, the insecurity of man, Daniel chapter 1, verses, Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Let me read chapter 2, verse 1, if you get there with me, and uh, let me flip to Daniel. I have been doing so many Bible studies. I got marks in my Bible from all over the place. But when you go to Daniel chapter one, uh, chapter two, excuse me, you're going to see something that's, uh, that really centers around one single night. And uh, it's a night that will change history. As a matter of fact, it changes Daniel, changes where he lives, changes almost everything about what we know. So in Daniel chapter two, verse one, it says, and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's dreamed dreams, wherein his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Nebuchadnezzar was a newcomer in leading the nation. Uh, he was not much experienced before he took the helm of the most powerful nation on the earth of the time. Now, how's that for an update of America? Let me read it to you again. Just think of your president. Nebuchadnezzar was a newcomer to leading the nation. Not much experience before he took the helm of the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And he has a dream. He has a nightmare. It wakes him up and it keeps him awake. How many of you ever had one of those? I do. I mean, how many of you have some dreams and, man, you can't go back to sleep? It, why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you. It can and it does happen to all of us, even in our supposed 20th century sophistication. Here's, the, here's how it comes how it summate, the summation of it. The problems of the day, all of our problems, often appear in different guise in the dreams of the night. All, we take our problems to bed with us. A lot of our dreams are not dreams uh, spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual dreams you can have. We talked about dreams and spiritual dreams, but a lot of times you dream because of the worries that you have during the day, and that comes and floats into the night. I've trained myself. This sounds really strange, and I don't want you to think I'm weird, but you know I am already. But uh, I train myself when I can't go to bed that I'll start thinking about a project I want to do, whether it's building a car or building a motorcycle or putting an addition on my house. And I will dream about it, and I will go to bed dreaming about that project, and I will usually in the middle of the night get some answer to that project. How many of you have ever done that? So I, and sometimes I'll dream about, about, the, about a message, and I've gotten messages in the middle of the night. Woke up, put the three points down or whatever God showed me. It's a verse of the scripture. And so there's a lot of times you may have the opportunity to kind of control your dreams, but sometimes you just don't. Sometimes they control you, and sometimes the pressures you have will make you dream. You've got to believe that President Obama is having some sleepless nights. Yeah. Did you ever notice the presidents, when they get into office, they have this really dark hair? And then after four years, they go white. That's because of sleepless nights. I pray that he would have a dream from God. Come on, somebody say amen. Now watch. It can and does happen to all of us. Again, the problems of the day. The anxieties of daylight can become the monsters of darkness. I like the way I put that, so I'm going to say it again. The anxieties of daylight can become the monsters of darkness. Why? Because fleshly mankind, all fleshly mankind, suffers at times from insecurity. The average person has more than 200 negative thoughts in a day. The average person, they have negative thoughts, they have worries and jealousies and insecurities and cravings for forbidden things. And research tells us that depressed people have as many as 700 negative thoughts per day and can grow more insecure day by day because of their thoughts. Now, couple the fact that they're bringing those to bed with them and they're having nightmares on them and you can see how depression becomes such a, such a belt that just pulls people in. Now, I never met him, but I can read between the lines, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most insecure leaders you will ever read about. 
And this troublesome, this troublesome dream is depressing him. Despite his power and position as king in Babylon, his heart of hearts was lost like a little child in the darkness. Let me tell you something. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a clue to what he was doing. Although he was smart, he's placed on the pinnacle of society. And let me tell you something. No preparation could put you there and make you understand what's going on. This is the same thing with Barack Obama. There's, there's a place where you, you, get, you get, it's called the Peter Principle. You're elevated to one step above that which you are able. You've seen it in your own jobs, haven't you? How many of you ever seen a boss above you that doesn't know anything? Okay, that's the Peter Principle. Somewhere down the line, he was elevated. They didn't know what to do with him, so they elevated him. And uh, the people under him know more than he knows. Come on, how many are with me? So now watch. This is what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's smart. And look, we must realize that financial, that financial success, academic achievement, popularity, or social or, or political acumen opens no doors to peace of mind and security. You can have the most money in the world. It doesn't mean you're going to have peace of mind. You can be the most popular person on the planet. It doesn't mean you have peace of mind. You can be very successful according to the world. That doesn't mean you're going to have peace of mind. How many are with me tonight? Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world at that time, and he was a mess. And, it, and now his sleep is being affected. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The dream triggered an early morning advisory meeting. That can't be good. The four categories of A's probably denoted representatives from the, all pagan factions of his advisory board. I kind of wonder what kind of pagans are on our advisory boards of our president. Daniel and his friends were excluded for some reason. For some reason, Daniel and his friends were not included in this advisory board. You can look at, uh, at Daniel chapter 1, verse 20. And in all manners of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his, all his realm. Yet he didn't include them at this moment in this advisory board. Kind of interesting to me. Nebuchadnezzar himself was a Chaldean. What does that mean? Well, the Chaldeans were the oldest people on the planet. They were from the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, which is the Babylonian Empire centered there. And they were what's called the Cradle of Civilization. The Garden of Eden was right here. Uh, there's four, four rivers that come out of the Garden of Eden, the Bible says in Genesis. Two of them are the Tigris and Euphrates. mentions them way back in Genesis. The two other ones, the Pihon and the Gihon, are, are right now underneath the Persian Gulf. The reason why this is the largest area where there's reserves of oil is because oil is carbon. It's from dead things. The things have been dying there since God created the planet and created man on it. So that's why there's such great oil reserves there because you have death of carbon. People are made of carbon. Animals are made of carbon. And trees are made of carbon. And so the oil reserves are concentrated in that area. This area is where the civilization of man sprung up from. So man knew things. They were very wise, very, very oriented to their society. So when they say it's a Chaldean, it means they have old wisdom. How many of you have an, a grandmother very, very old that has this old wisdom? May not be book smart, but she has, a, come on, raise your hand. You have this old wisdom. You know, you have a problem with your ear and it's blocked and she rolls up a piece of newspaper and sets fire to it and makes you step on one and then your, your ear's better. Or you burn all your hair off. I mean, you know, one or the other. We have an absolute monarch that wants the answers to his questions immediately or sooner. If he doesn't get them, heads will soon roll. This is a big insecurity. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. That's, a, that's an old language, by the way. O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we'll show the interpretation. Don't you love Monday morning prophets? 
You tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. It's like, it's like when people ask somebody a question, and I'm not, gonna be, I'm not being judgmental. They ask somebody a question at an altar they want to pray for. Them. Tell me, they ask them a question, and they want to be a prophet, so they ask a question, and they tell them something based on the question. Why don't you just talk to them if God's showing you something? Come on, I'm here with me. Now, underline this verse, Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. Underline it in your Bibles, because I'm going to share something with you that a lot of Bible scholars stay away from. Let me tell you why. Almost all of the Old Testament comes to us in Hebrew. The New Testament's in Greek, Old Testament's in Hebrew. Because it's God relating himself through the, Hebrew, through the Hebrew people, the Jews. This is the only part in Scripture, the only part of Scripture, that is written in the original Aramaic. From Daniel chapter 2, verse 4 to Daniel chapter 7 is not in Hebrew at all. It's in Aramaic. We get our English translation directly from the Aramaic here. Now you're going to have to ask yourself a couple questions why, and I'll probably answer those for you tonight. One of the reasons why is the language of Babylon. Whenever a nation conquers the world, it usually instills all of its practices on that world, like its language. When the Greeks conquered the world, Greece became, Greek became the language. When the Romans conquered the world, Latin became the language. When America conquered the world and England conquered the world, English became the world language. Well, the world language at this time is Aramaic. And man, this is good, listen, because at that time, Aramaic, not Hebrew, was the world's language, like English is today. Again, like Greek was, like Latin was. And here's why I believe. I believe the Holy Spirit is addressing pagan nations. And I believe he's addressing the most powerful man in the world at this moment and ungodly nations of all times in their own language. God is speaking in their own language because what's about to come about is the story of the rise and fall of every single nation and ruler that will ever try to conquer planet Earth. This is one of the most powerful parts of Scripture that the Holy Spirit changes the language and uses the original language of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians at this time. Man, this is amazing to me. God's prophesying in the world's language just so they get it. He's prophesying in their own language in 600 BC. The, the uh, timeline and the downfall, he's prophesying of every single nation that will ever gain predominance on planet Earth. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We're going to build to a crescendo tonight. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me. He, they said, show us your dream. He says, I don't know my dream anymore. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you will be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Now this guy is serious. The original text in that becomes Aramaic at this point and continues again to the end of chapter 7. This section relates primarily to non-Jewish world. The king was hard on his support group. He hadn't forgotten the dream uh, totally. He says, it's there somewhere. Just tell me if you ever dreamt something and you woke up and you know you dreamed, you dreamed something and you want to remember it and just one word Cut, I mean, one word gave it a whole dream back. That's what he's saying. He says, I know the dream. It's right there. He's saying, if you can interpret it, then you can tell me the dream. Isn't that true? If you're that great and you can give me the interpretation, why can't you give me the dream too? Now watch. So he says, the command for me, the, the, new, the uh, NIV says, the command for me is firm. Another translation says, I mean what I said. Tell me the dream first. His reasoning is this. If they could divine the interpretation, then they could divine the dream as well. If they were as great as they thought they were, they should be able to tell them the dream, not just the interpretation. This would give them proof that their prophecies were valid. I told you last week that I believe Nebuchadnezzar had a very high IQ, and he does. I did an in-house survey one day when I was, some of you may have been there, when I was at Cathedral of the Cross preaching on a Wednesday night. We were talking about prophecies. We were talking about future. We were talking about soothsayers. We were talking about palm readers. We were talking about fortune tellers. We were talking about people who can read the future. So I had a telephone out there. How many remember this? And I called up some people on a psychic hotline. They were on loudspeaker. 
by the way, several billion dollar industry in America. And I asked them if they could help me. And they said, sure, we can help you. You're, and I said, well, can you tell me something about, about myself? And they said, well, let us ask you some questions first. I said, I'll tell you what. Don't tell me anything about myself. There was an election was coming up. I said, tell me who's going to win the election tomorrow. He said, well, you know, we don't really give election predictions. I said, well, let me ask you this question. When, when was the last time you played the lottery? I said, well, why? I said, did you win? I mean, would you not win? If you could see the future, would you not win? I mean, why don't you take all your energies and zap it towards the, the little balls that come up out of the thing? Come on, give me a break. No, they wanted to tell me something ambiguous, something that could fit every shoe, like, your, like a horoscope. People read the horoscope and they think it's for them. How silly. How absolutely nonsensical. It is so vague, it's not even funny. So he's telling them this. He's saying, listen, I could tell you a dream, and you'll tell me anything you want to tell me. Tell me the dream. Let me remember the dream. He's putting them on this. On the, and then he says this. He says, if you can divine this interpretation, then the, you, you can divine the dream. Uh, failing, he says, uh, your lives and your property are on the line. Actually, literally in the, in the uh, Aramaic, it says, your houses will be made into public toilets. It's very, very strong. This guy is serious. Conversely, if they could show the dream and its meaning, they would be heavily rewarded. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Still with me tonight? They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we'll show the interpretation of it. They went right against him. He says, tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. It didn't match the king's terms. Tell me the dream and the interpretation, he said. If they could just get the dream, though, they could make up any kind of meaning, and he knew that. Nebuchadnezzar holds firm. I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, in verse 8 he says. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain the time because you see the thing is gone from me. He says, I know what you're doing. You're trying to stall so that I'll remember my dream. But I am serious. I want you to tell me this dream. Well, it's getting pretty tense. If it was a movie, if this was a movie, uh, you'd want to press pause right now and go get a sandwich before it continues. <laughs> Come on, ask yourself the obvious question, the one the advisors obviously ask. What's got into this guy? I mean, he's got everything in the world. He's sitting on top of the most power that anybody could ever sit upon. He has all the wealth he wants. He has all the popularity he wants. He's building a city that's going to be, that's going to be tremendous. As a matter of fact, this city is going to give him a name forever. One of the gardens in this city is actually one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a magnificent thing. What in the world is bothering him that he wants an interpretation of a simple dream? Why then? then why should a mere dream then fill him with such an anxiety? Uh, the answer is that Nebuchadnezzar was a man whose heart was set on goals that would in the long run prove to be mirages in the desert. Now listen, because your application is all over this tonight. He lived exclusively for this world. He lived based on what this world could give him. Thus, the horizons of his ambitions always move with the change and the decay of the world. Listen, if you're in sync with the world, then as the world goes, you go. The world falls, you fall. If you're in sync with the world, all I have to do is point you to Hollywood. The star that everybody's oohing and on about today is going to be gone tomorrow. Why do you think they call them stars? It's a flash. Oh, yeah. It goes through the sky. It's a flash. So they try to, they try to maintain their star-like appearances. They get 130 facelifts. But now in order to get a toenail removed, they've got to cut back of their ear. <laughs> They're trying to hold on to something. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're, if you're geared up with the world... If you're geared up with the world, you're going to have to stay pace with the world. Now, just follow me tonight for a moment, okay? Listen. He lived excuse exclusively for this world, but God made us, all of us, 
not for this world. It's one of the hardest things man could ever hear. We're not made for planet Earth. Listen, I've been at the, at the deathbed of many, many people, saints and people who are not saved. And I'll tell you, some of the saints I've been at the deathbed with, with, they have ministered to me more than anything you could possibly imagine. They were ready. They saw it in their eyes. There was something more. They were like that neurosurgeon. They knew that there was something beyond. Then I was been at the, at the deathbed of saints, and they were so afraid to die, so afraid to leave this. What is this? We weren't made for this. We were made for God. I mean, we were made for God to go back to God. Come on, somebody say amen. That's your homecoming. Now, I'm not saying that we should all run out and try to die. That's not what I'm saying. But don't fight that. I mean, don't fight the fact that we're made for something else. But Nebuchadnezzar had no God. What, what does the world do? What, are, what do people do who don't believe in God? What do they have to look forward to? What does somebody who believes in evolution have to look forward to? They're dead and they're dust and they're gone forever. The resurrection is powerful, is it not? The human heart in St. Augustine's words is restless until it finds its rest in God. Oh man, how true that is today. That means it doesn't matter if we are rich or poor among the haves or the have-nots. Look, in humanity without God, those who have plenty without God are anxious because they want to guarantee that they'll keep that plenty. You know, Saddam Hussein, when he was being hunted down, sent eight trucks loaded with gold outside of, outside of, his, of his nation so that he could seal it away someplace so nobody would touch it. The ones who don't have God want to hang on to everything they have. And the ones who don't have God that are poor, they want to make sure that they can aspire to the place and get to a spot where they can have everything. It's humanity. Now listen, but as long as we live in this life on the horizontal plane, just about what we are and who we are here, we will never be de delivered from the deep-seated insecurity that haunts humanity. Humanity is haunted by insecurity. All of us are. And if you're living your life on a horizontal plane, then you're going to need to be the most popular. You're going to need to be the one that everybody talks about. You're going to need to be the one that's always up high and has all the command. And boy, if you get to that spot, you're never going to be at peace because insecurity will make you try to keep that spot. And uh, I'm going to share a couple of stories with you in a moment. You still with me tonight? As long as Nebuchadnezzar sought security and rest in possessions or power or popularity or his future reputation, he would never be content. Nebuchadnezzar, like so many people in our world today, had everything except one thing he needed most. And it's the thing I want to tell you about tonight. He did not have peace. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Let me repeat that. It's not the absence of trouble, but rather it's the presence of God. Let me repeat it one more time. Peace is not the absence of trouble. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But rather it's the presence of God. And he didn't have it. A couple of months ago at a pastor's gathering, a pastor came up to me and asked me how I felt now that I had no longer pastored a mega church of thousands of people. He said he heard that I preach in all sized churches. And then his, his brow went up a little bit. He said, I heard you preach in small churches, like I was a failure or something, I guess. And he wanted to know how I'm adjusting to that. And I love this tone. He said, how are you adjusting to that? <laughs> I told him, I'm not adjusting to that man. He was like excited to hear that I was in bad shape. <laughs> he starts shaking his head like he, was, like he was pitying me or something. I told him, I'm not adjusting to it because I never needed a mega church to make me feel secure. I never needed a mega church to make me feel important. I don't care if I preach to 10 people or I preach to 10,000, it doesn't bother me. I've been to the top in, in a mega church and let me tell you something, it doesn't matter. As long as I can preach the word and change a life, it's all that matters to me. My security doesn't come in how popular I am. 
My security doesn't come in how many people come to my church. My security doesn't come in everybody's putting their hands on my back and saying, oh, you're such a great person. That's not my security. My security comes from Jesus Christ. My security comes from knowing that I can go to bed at night and I'm excited about my life because Jesus has extended his hand towards me and has given me mercy. That's my security. My security is not done because I have money in the bank. My security is not done because I'm poor. I have no security in those things. My security is in Jesus. Let me tell you something. Nebuchadnezzar was in trouble. His security was based on his position. And as long as his position could stand, he's going to dream a dream of this huge image. He's probably thinking this image is going to take him over. As a matter of fact, the interpretation is going to tell him it will take him over. But the problem is not the image. The problem is his own security. He has no peace. And let me tell you something. You can be the leader of a 10 million member congregation. If you don't have peace, you will sleep worse than the person that's in the gutter that night that has peace of God. The peace of God, the Bible says, passes all understanding. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're successful or people come and flock to hear you or only two church mice come out to hear you. It doesn't matter because you got the peace of God and you'll walk with your head up because you know that God is on your side. Nebuchadnezzar had no peace. Most world leaders have no peace. You know why? Because they want to stay on top, but you're never going to stay on top forever. Listen, it's going to go up and it's going to go down. That's the way life is. So you got to find something that doesn't go up and down. And I know something that stays constant all the time. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, he never changes. I told him, I'm not adjusting to it because I never needed a mega church to make me feel secure and important. Then I told him, as a matter of fact, I feel more secure now as an evangelist who lives on faith than I ever felt as a paid, successful mega church pastor. He walked away confused, and then I started shaking my head. Look at Daniel 2.9. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak to me till the time be changed. Uh, therefore, tell me the dream that I know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. He, Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is an important dream and he distrusts these advisors. He's already decided that their words are lying and corrupt. They would be hoping that things would become different if they stalled in giving an answer. Look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things as any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. Now, the strategy changes to saying his requirements are impossible. They accuse him of acting differently than other kings. Accusing this boss was not safe. How many of you understand that? He's already insecure. You accuse him, you're going to die. But they already know they're going to die because they already told them they're going to die. So they have nothing to lose. He said, if you don't give me the dream, I'm killing you. You're going to die. So they have nothing to lose. They say, it's impossible. What you're telling us is impossible. Nobody would do this. Look at Daniel 2.11. You're getting into the message a little bit tonight? And it is a rare thing that the king requires. There is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Man, don't you love the unsaved pagan world and how they play right into God's hands? They are setting him up for death. Daniel. They're saying, there's nobody can tell you this dream, O king, except the God himself, except it comes from heaven. Well, they just said something. They just said, we can't do this, and you need somebody like God that can do it. Listen, now it suggests that the only heavenly gods can do what the, the king wants done. They're beginning to point to Daniel without even knowing it. If a God is required that does not dwell with men, then of course they have no contact with him, and they have no manual of the dreams. Then, listen, they're planting the seed in Nebuchadnezzar's mind that only the gods, or God, 
God, whose dwelling is not with flesh, it's in heaven, can show the king what he needs to know. Man, I wish somebody would say this to Congress. I wish somebody would say this to the Senate. Man, I wish somebody would take the President of the United States, sit him down, and tell him, you have no solution to this. Man can't show you the solution to this. The only solution is from God in heaven. I wish somebody was bold enough, there was a Daniel somewhere in that cabinet, that they would summon one of these days when they're all frustrated, and say, tell us what's going on here, and somebody speaks the word of God to them. We have a country presently founded on insecurity. Even the programs we have to help each other are, have insecurity running in them and through them. Take the Social Security, for example. I hope you aren't depending on Social Security. Here's the facts. 1937, 17 people paid in for everyone that took out. Good program. 1967, 13 paid in for everyone that took out. 1997, five paid in for everyone that took out. 2007, two paid in for everyone that took out. Today, less than one are paying in for everything someone's taking out, one's taking out. I don't think we should call it social security. I think we should call it social insecurity. Look at Daniel chapter two, verse 12. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Look at 13. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Now remember, Daniel wasn't even in the place. He wasn't, but there, he's a wise man, so he has to be slain. No, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just going to kill the advisors who were present at the meeting, but he's going to kill all of them, all the advisors, all the magicians, all the soothsayers, all the Chaldeans, all the wise men, including Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. They're all dead. The king is enraged at the, those who have gained fame and fortune and power by claiming to know the deepest secrets of man and the gods. And they can't even tell him what he dreamed. The fact that Daniel and his fellows shared in the decree of destruction shows that they were included as official advisors, even though they weren't there. Secondly, as we go on tonight, knocking on heaven's door. That's the insecurity of man. Now let me give you knocking on heaven's door. Daniel chapter 2, verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So, so Arioch comes, the council, this is the guy who's the head of the guard of Nebuchadnezzar. He comes to the obvious, the houses where these wise men are gathered, and he's going to kill them. He tells them the king's decree. Daniel is using some of the prudence God had given him. Daniel 1.20 says that, as I told you, that he had a lot of wisdom and understanding. In Daniel 2.15, listen to what it says. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Why is he telling you to do this? So then, Dan, then Arioch tells him what happened. So Daniel asks why. Why does he want to kill us? I mean, how many of you feel it's always a good thing to ask why somebody wants to kill you? <laughs> I think it is. Daniel 2.16, listen to this one. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. The very audacity of Daniel's plan must have impressed Arioch. Probably Daniel himself didn't go in, but probably someone went in with Daniel's, uh, Daniel's proxy. Verse 24 kind of hints to that. To offer Nebuchadnezzar a reprieve. After all, dead advisors can't give any more advice. How many of you know that? It should be noted that Daniel does not know the dream at this time. He doesn't know the interpretation this time. Daniel is acting strictly in faith. Daniel's saying, give me an opportunity. Amen. Daniel's going to do something that the advisors couldn't do, the magicians couldn't do to find the answer to this. Man, it's something you and I need to do. Now I'm going to read quickly and just give you some quick comments before we go further. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. So following Daniel's offer to explain the dream, there was one serious prayer meeting. It was at Daniel's house, not the library of the Chaldeans. 
They had nothing to offer. 18, they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. The Bible says that God opens up the secrets of men to his children. I believe you and I have the secret to America. I don't think America's ever going to come here and interview us. I don't think Wolf Blitzer has a clue. But you have the secret to America. Come on, somebody say amen. We have the secret to our foreign policy. You bless Israel. That's it. It's no bigger than that. Now watch. That they would desire mercy to the God of heaven concerning the secret. I'm going to start getting excited. That Daniel and his companions should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. The Chaldeans were correct that the answer would not come from earth. Daniel and his company were getting a potent lesson on the mercies of God. It was his mercy or their death. Praying friends are valuable friends. They knew they had to pray the answer down. Man, how many times have you been in that situation that you have to pray something into being? Listen, verse 19, then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel reveals the dream and its meaning to Dan. God reveals it to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel, in turn, blesses God of heaven. His life had been spared along with many others. God gives Daniel the dream. He tells him what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. Well, why not? God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now watch. Daniel answered, verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for his wisdom and might are his. The exact form of the blessing is recorded. Daniel expresses God's superior power. God always has superior power. He has superior power over man's intellect. He has superior power over man's logic. He has superior power over man's designs and over man's plans. If you don't tap into God when you're doing anything in your life, then you're missing the superior power. We have that power available to us anytime we pray to God. Come on, somebody say amen. He says in verse 21, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings. Man, you can put the word president in there. Come on, somebody say amen. He removes presidents and sets up presidents. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that have understanding. How many of you think that, how many of you think that Mitt Romney was actually stellar in the last presidential debate? How many of you believe that it might have been God doing that. How many believe that everything that came back to his mind, I understand he's a Mormon, but I'm not even sure what Barack Obama is. I'm not saying he's our answer, but I'm saying, man, he has some answers, did he not? Come on, somebody say amen. This is the key that Daniel says. Daniel said, he's in God's in control. We know that, but it's good for us to hear that. I told you, yes, go vote. But don't think that, that what, what happens one way or the other, that you're going to be out of control. God is in control. We win this thing. I read the end of the book. We win. I'm telling you what, you are not on the, on the losing side. No matter what happens, you're on the winning side. Daniel knows this. He knows that, man, God, just give me an opportunity to go before him. Give me an opportunity because I know you have the answers. I know you have the answers all the way down the line. Now watch. Verse 22 he reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Daniel's expressing that God adds to the naturally acquired wisdom and knowledge of advisors. God has inexhaustible stores of information. You know, some of you tonight may have a question. Some of you may be praying for something. Some of you may be saying, I need to make a decision. God knows the exact decision you're supposed to make. He knows the perfect decision you're supposed to make. And some of us settle for the permissive will of God instead of the perfect will of God. God will let you do anything you want to do. You can beg him as much as you want for your will, and you'll get it. You know, Israel said, we need a king. God said, I'm your king. So we need a king. I'm your king. They prayed, give us a king. God said, I'm your king. They prayed again. God said, okay, have your king. And when they had their king, they had nothing but problems. 
So you don't want to pray your will on God. Come on, somebody say amen. You want, to, you want to pray the perfect will of God. You're still with me tonight? Verse 23, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my Father. It's a prayer. Who has given me wisdom and might and has now made known unto me what we desired of thee, for thou hast made known unto us the king's matter. Daniel expresses that his own wisdom and might are anchored in the wisdom and might of God. Now this is going to play in tonight as we go to the end of this. Daniel further expresses thanksgiving for answering the prayer of the four men uh, for, uh, for information about the dream. It should be noted that the elements of the prayer are not necessarily new information, but they were items that were expressed to God. Some of our prayers should take that model. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went into the Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy, kill the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to him, destroy, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Daniel even intervened on behalf of his pagan colleagues. He resisted the opportunity to say, kill all those pagan advisors and let us live. Listen, vengeance is God's, it's not ours. These phonies owe their lives to Daniel, but they didn't remember that very long. In the next chapter, they actually denounce him and, and try to get him killed, which leads me to something I say all the time. No good deed goes unpunished. Now, Daniel has made the commitment again. He will show the interpretation. Failure at this point would get a lot of paid politicians killed. Verse 25. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the children of the captivity of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. Note the haste here. Lives are at stake. The record sounds like Ariok was making the claims that they're different than the other ones that you've talked to. Verse 26. The king answered and said unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou, thou able to make known the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Belteshazzar was, of course, his court name, pagan name, and didn't include a reference to, to Jehovah God, the L portion of Daniel. I'm going through this fast, and I'm going to explain a little bit later. Nebuchadnezzar required the dream as well as the meaning. Verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded can neither wise men, enchanters, magicians, or soothsayers show unto the king. Daniel had been trained in the secrets of the courts, so he knew their limitations. Daniel first took the opportunity to show the impotence of the advisors to the king. Man, somebody needs to do that today. But there is a God in heaven, verse 28, that reveals secrets. And he made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. What a wonderful opportunity for Daniel to plant the seed of truth in the mind of a pagan monarch. What courage it took to stand in the presence of such an absolute despot who considered himself a god and speak about the living God. Daniel's courage was born of his faith in God and his knowledge of the situation, the extremity of Nebuchadnezzar's anxiety. Verse 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts come into the mind upon thy bed, what shall come to pass hereafter. And he that reveals secrets has made known to thee what shall come to pass. He was starting to get into Nebuchadnezzar's inner mind. He's saying, I know your anxieties, and God knows them. The great revealer of secrets has communicated with you. Notice it doesn't say, Daniel doesn't look for accords for himself. I know. He's giving it all towards God. Listen to verse 30. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have, more than the living, any living, but to the intent that the interpretation may be known to the king, that thou mayest know the thoughts of thy heart. He says, it's not about me. It's not that I'm smarter than anyone else. It's because I've prayed to God and he showed me something. Now, I went through that quickly so I could tell you this. All of this points us to some important truths about man, about God, and about man's insecurities. And who really is in control of our twisted world? Throughout the Bible, the stories of Joseph, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, John, and Paul all share some basic similarities to the life of Daniel. As their lives, all their lives, are set in, contra in contrast to the ungodly. 
This contrast between God's servants and worldly rulers reveals a pattern in the lives and testimonies of faithful men. And tonight, I'm going to show you the features that all these men had in common that allowed them to stand up tall in a world that was, was ungodly. And believe it or not, they had seven attributes that not only describes the Messiah, but also describes every true follower of God, including you and including me tonight. So Daniel gives the interpretation to this anxious king. He tells him that God showed him. But how does Daniel get to that spot? How, does all, how do all these other men of the Bible, including Jesus and Peter and John and Isaiah, how do they stand before kings? A lot of them do. How do they stand and proclaim something so bold? How can you do that? It's the exact same things that if you acquire and aspire to these seven attributes, God will use you in this world to truly make a difference in the lives of the people that are around you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, and even in the lives of the ungodly. Seven attributes that they had. They're right from Isaiah. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, but every one of them shared it, and I'll break them down for you. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And shall make him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge at the sight of his eyes, neither reprove at the hearing of his ears. What does it mean? It means this. If you and I get these seven things in our lives, you will start changing your world and the people around you. Number one, the Spirit of the Lord resting on us. It's God's peace. When you have God's peace, you no longer are living in a horizontal plane. Amen. If you have God's peace, somebody can take $1,000 away from you. You're not going to be happy, but it's not going to mess you up. Amen. Somebody can give you $1,000. You may be happy, but it's still not going to mess you up. Amen. Without God's peace, you are living horizontally. If you have God's peace, you are going to affect people. Secondly, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's found in God's word. If you know God's word, then no matter what happens around you, you can be secure. Listen, I know God's word. I'm reading you some of the most horrible in the news every Thursday. I have some people that love in the news. I have other people that say this. I'm, I don't like hearing in the news. Hey, I don't like telling you in the news. But God's word tells me that there's something beyond in the news. Come on, how many are with me tonight? Yeah. Thirdly, and watch it as we go tonight. Third, the spirit of counsel and might. This is godly insight. Do you know, people come and they counsel with me. I don't open my Bible and read them scripture verses. I'll get them some scripture verses, but I know enough of God's word and what they're going through to be able to give them some insight. I've seen it. I've watched it. I've read about it. I understand it. That insight comes from a communication with God. Come on, all of us should have that. Somebody say amen. amen. Fourth, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. This is godly fear. Do you know why I don't sin? And I'm not talking about never sinning. Understand. You understand the context of that. You know why I'm not a habitual sinner. I mean, understand that. Yeah. You know why? Because I fear God. Amen. It's not because Cheryl's watching me. It's not because I'm a pastor and I shouldn't do that. I remember when, when, I was, when our kids were small, I remember, I remember running a, a yellow light. And it was, I guess it was red. <laughs> and Mark said to me, he was very small. He said, Dad, you're a pastor. And you know what I said? I know. But being a pastor didn't make me run that light or not run that light. Being a human made me run that light. Yeah. True. And you're a human all the time, even when no one's looking. That's true. So when you have a godly fear, I sometimes I think about, and this is, again, not judgmental because I don't want to ever be judged, but I think about some men that have preached the word of God and they've done some horrific things. I think, did they not have a fear of God? I mean, forget about people seeing you. Your best Christianity is done when you're in the dark and by yourself, not when you're in the open. Listen, this is what made him powerful. 
the delight, the delight in our fear of the Lord. That's godly contentment. I told you before with that story, I said, I'm content with God. That doesn't mean I don't want to do anything for God. It means I'm satisfied in what God is doing in my life. I'm not anxious for anything. Six, not judging others by what we see. This is a godly outlook. You will never help another individual if every time you look at somebody, you judge them because of what you see. If you judge people by what you see, you'll never help anybody. And lastly, not judging others by what you hear. Godly thoughts. You should choose to hear the best about people, even when somebody tells you the worst about them. Now, I could tell you these, I could teach these, but I'm telling you, if you have these, you are going to change your world. Amen. Now, let me just go a little further. How do you get these seven virtues? Well, it's all found in verse 14, one word in the Aramaic. One word in verse 14, listen to it. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom. Look at that word wisdom. And here's where the Holy Spirit, through the advantage of the Aramaic language, really gives the point. Daniel 2.14, the word wisdom in the Aramaic, um, I told you again, it was written in the original Aramaic. Babylon was known for its good taste. Now, just follow me. It was known for the finer things of life. Being educated, tasteful in matters of fashion and dress. You'll read about fine Babylonian garments. They knew the Armanis and the Rolexes and the, the Gucci's of their time. They were, they were noted for their fine taste in homes and, and decor, the Hanging Gardens, the Temple of Bellas, 110 temples, 95 parks in and around Babylon. They were known for their good taste and knowledge, astrologers, soothsayers, magicians, Chaldeans, wise men. Now watch. It's amazing and insightful that the word wisdom in verse 14 is a word translated taste in the Aramaic, ta'am, as in good taste. And now here's where it really comes home to us. It conveys those spiritual instincts and judgment, discernment, and what we might call a spiritual insight to the realities of a situation. You see, Daniel's wisdom, his taste, was a well-developed sense of spiritual taste. Now listen, let me give you some examples. Is it good taste, wisdom, to tell people they're going to hell? And yet Christians do it all the time. Is it wisdom, good taste, to keep hitting your unsaved relatives like your husband or your wife over the head with the Bible to try to get them saved? And there's a lot of people listening to this on YouTube. We get more and more information about people. Listen, this is going out to you too. Is it wisdom to argue with another Christian over theology? If they do or if they don't go to movies, if they do or if they don't do this or do that, is that wisdom? Is that good taste? Is it good taste to tell someone that they are not healed because they don't have enough faith? I had a pastor come to me when I had cancer and said, you know what, you've talked really, you've, you've, you've spoken really hard against the church and against the, the nominal church and the user-friendly church. He actually told somebody, a pastor of a large church in this area, told somebody, I got cancer because I said that. No, I didn't. And I will continue to say that because a user-friendly church is not helping a, a, a Christian. It's just giving you a place to go like a Burger King. So I'll continue to do that. Is it wisdom to tell somebody that they don't need, that, that uh, to judge the woman who has been married five times? when you're trying to lead somebody to Christ. Is it wisdom to tell her all of her sins? Jesus never did that. He would ask us if it was in good taste to reach for the splinter in your brother's eye when a telephone pulls in your eye. Daniel had spiritual taste. He knew what to say and when to say it. Is it always right to speak what you know is right? Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season 
to him that is weary. He waketh morning by morning, he waketh mine ear to hear his learned. Some people really have hurt people with spiritual words. How are you ever going to reach anybody by condemning them? How are you ever going to reach anybody by, by pointing out their faults? How are you ever going to reach anybody by telling you, I don't do this, but you do. You shouldn't do those things. We speak about people having good taste in many spheres today. What we mean is that they're able to tell the difference between good clothes and cheap clothes, between fine dining and what I call cattle feed, fast food restaurants. There are people in our world who can tell the year of, fine, of a fine wine just by tasting it or just by smelling it or the origin of the leaves of a cup of tea. They have, through experience and knowledge, a highly developed sense of awareness. Daniel had the spiritual sensitive awareness. That's why he was able to get into Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the same as zeal. I remember when I first got saved, I told you the story. Uh, my brother and I used to fight all the time. I first got saved, we were just enemies, mortal enemies. I first got saved, I get up in the morning, I make him breakfast every single morning. He looked at me like I was extremely weird. I'd say, I'd put, a, put it in front of him and say, here, Sam, eat this. You may die tonight and you're going straight to hell. <laughs> That's called zeal. Christians have a lot of zeal. And sometimes it's not according to knowledge. Romans 10.2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now watch. Come on. How many homosexuals are we going to make an impact on by carrying a sign on Gay Pride Day that reads, all homosexuals are going to hell? We as Christians can obscure the message of God by our insensitive behavior. Look at Daniel 2.46. We'll just jump ahead for a second. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. We'll tell you why he did that. That means that in Nebuchadnezzar's court, the king called Daniel something that was amazing. He re-elevated him. But before he did that, he called him Belteshazzar. You know what Belteshazzar means? Baal's servant, the pagan god's servant. How would you like somebody in your world where you, are, where you go to work tomorrow call you Satan's son? What would you do? What would you do if your boss came to you every time he saw you and said, hey, Satan's son, come here. Knowing you're a Christian. Now, they called him Satan's son. And what did Daniel do to Nebuchadnezzar when he called him that? Did he say, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord? Well, that would have been the last time he rebuked anybody because he would have killed him. You know, dead, he ate it. He did not want to ruin his opportunity to speak life and truth. Are you listening to me tonight? Amen. Now watch. You can see Daniel rebuking him, can't you? No. Or correcting the king? No, he's wise. He's tasteful. He knows he can correct him. But then he also knows it would be the last time he ever corrected him. No, Daniel's wise and he has wisdom. Jesus said that we are to be this in the world. Watch. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This taste should be, to some degree, characterize all of us who want to change our world. It did characterize Jesus. He had spiritual taste. He's talking about, in Matthew chapter 24, he's talking about um, rendering the, unto Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God what is God's. He didn't tell them, listen, don't, the Jews believed that, that Rome was coming in and giving him a false god. Jesus said, you know what, do what you have to do, but he's not going to get into that trap. He said, just give God what's God's and give Caesar what's Caesar's. Great taste. This is how Daniel excelled. It was one reason why he, that he, like all godly leaders, had a good testimony among those who were outside the flock. Look at 1 Timothy 3.7. I'm closing soon. It says, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It is okay, watch this, 
because you're going to look at me twice. It is okay for the world to like you. You don't have to go out and make enemies of the world. They know you're different. So why do you have to show the world you're different? Why do Christians feel impelled to put people in the world in their place? Why do they feel like they've got to tell them? You know why? Are you ready for this? Because Christians, when they do that, are insecure. Now just follow me tonight. You still with me tonight? I want to teach. Well, I've got four amens. Most of the time, Christians are vehement. And most of the times, the Christians are vehement about what they believe. It's because they're insecure. Arguing about pre, mid, post, or trip rapture. I preached, I preached the message in a Christian church in, in Atlanta. I preached this message on the, on the uh, end times. And some guy wrote a book, some Christian wrote a book in the audience on, on the end times. And he was not a pre-tribulation rapture theory uh, person. As I was preaching, he tried to call me down. Listen, I'm cool. I, I, it's all right. I said, listen, brother. You have a difference of opinion. That's wonderful. We'll talk about it later. Found out later he came up. His wife came to me and she said, I am so sorry. He is so ignorant. <laughs> I said, I'm glad you told me that. I'm not going to say it. Why do people feel they have to do You know why? Because they're insecure. They're insecure with what they believe. Listen, arguing about once saved, always saved. Are you kidding me? Why do you think people argue about once saved, always saved? Because they're insecure. Because they're not really sure. They want to make somebody else feel bad about themselves. Christians, listen, just live your life for Jesus. Forget about it. Come on, somebody say amen. Arguing about whether wine in Jesus' day was fermented or not. Who cares? If you have a conviction not to drink wine, don't drink it. Are you listening to me tonight? Arguing whether someone can get to heaven if they smoke. Now, come on, you know the answer to that. They actually can get to heaven faster than someone who doesn't smoke. <laughs> We get cornered in by small insecurities. And we, if we don't face them, we'll never grow past them. We're like sharks, in a sense. Did you know that if you catch a small shark and you put him in a small enclosure, a small aquarium, he'll only grow to about six inches? I had this little shark. It was a red-tailed shark I put in my, my aquarium. He was four inches when I got him way back when. He grew to six inches. But you know, if you take him outside that aquarium and you put him in the ocean, they'll grow to eight feet. Mm-hmm. I've seen in my years some of the cutest six-inch Christians you could possibly imagine. <laughs> they're so insecure, they're in their little box. And man, if everybody doesn't believe the way they believe, man, they're just, they're not going to grow at all. Yeah. It's time to get outside the box. Their insecurities are holding them back and haunting them and it's haunting others. They settle for life in a little puddle of insecurity. And they don't realize their ability to grow and become great if they just let go and if they just let God. Daniel's about to interpret the most powerful dream ever given to man, an unsaved man at that, and he knows it. So he puts himself in a position to be heard. How many times do we exempt ourselves being in a position to be heard because we've judged someone? Or we said something harsh to them? I'm not telling you it wasn't the truth, but maybe we just should have and waited for the time. He's careful, he's deliberate, he's wise. You could say he's tasteful. And God uses him. There's someone in my family, I don't want to embarrass him, but I'll tell you about it. Someone in my family that people constantly come up to me and say, you know, I met, well, I'll tell you about it. I met your son. He's not here tonight. So I, I met your son. And you know what? One, one lady told me the other day, she says, I just love him. Everybody tells me, I get sick of hearing people love my son. <laughs> 
He said, he just won't ask, he won't say anything about himself. He always asks about how you're doing, and he asks questions about you, and every time you ask something about him, he'll tell you something, but then he turns it back and seems to be genuinely interested in you. I got news for you, he really is. He has that talent much better than I do. But he knows, he can speak things into people's life that I, sometimes I can't speak into it because he's listened, and he's not so much thinking about his own words, but about somebody else's. He has some spiritual taste. I'm not telling you he's a perfect person, but he has some spiritual taste. Oh, come on. You're here tonight to gain wisdom, are you not? Yeah. Are you not here to gain taste? If this was a wine tasting, don't everybody go nuts with me right now. We would have you sip wines and spit them out. I guess that's what they do. I'm not sure how long you can do that before you know what you're doing, but that's what they would do. So we're having you sip the truth of God's word tonight. The truth of God's word. Listen to it. It's powerful. And if you get out of here, you will know sipping his word, that this is how you're going to change lives, having God's peace, God's word in your heart, godly insight into life, godly fear, godly contentment, godly outlook, and, and godly thoughts. You will change heathens that are around you when that happens because they will see something that, nothing, that no one else in the world really has. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognized that unlike his other cycle fans, there's your word for the week, it means someone who seeks to please a person of authority in order to get some grace from them. Daniel could be trusted implicitly and was wise above all men. We will see that young Daniel, when he spoke, he seemed to grow in size until he became so large that you could have picked up a king like Nebuchadnezzar and put him in his pocket. True spiritual stature like that can never be hidden, as Nebuchadnezzar knew. And God wants all of us to be used like that in some way. I can't reach the people you can reach. You have people around you that are unsaved. Don't be so quick to put a demarcation line in front of them and say, you're not like me. They already know that. Make sure that you can try to break down that middle wall of partition by showing them that you have something that they need. The Bible says that Israel should be jealous of what we have. And how many, when is the last time somebody was jealous of your spiritual stance? You know, and I know I'm talking to the choir. I'm talking to people who want to be here. I'm not talking to the ones who are watching the debate tonight. I'm talking to you. But we need men and women with some spirit today. We don't need more pomp in the pulpits, more popular preachers, more fads or noise, or more triumphalism and whose church is the biggest or has the most members that makes me sick to my stomach. We need Christians of complete integrity who know that God's eye is upon them and that he, you are his plan A and he has no plan B to reach our world. Tonight, he has you and he has me. And you know what gets me so excited about teaching this on a Thursday night? is that you want to be here to hear it, that you want to change. We're all imperfect, but we want to change. This is real church to me. Yeah. This is what it's about. It's about changing lives. And you know what? You don't have to go to a missions field to change lives. I guarantee you there's some people in your own family that need some help. I guarantee you there's some people around you that can use some help. Will people abuse you? You bet. Will people will make you shut you down, not want to do anything? You bet. But you have to have the wisdom and the good taste to know that God is leading you. And you're here on this planet for that reason. Would you bow your heads with me tonight? Next week, I'm going to throw some charts at you that's going to spin your head. <laughs> I'm going to show you some things that are just absolutely most amazing thing that I've ever read about in Scripture. We're going to get into the depth and the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But I wanted you to know tonight how we got there. It was one young man who was mature enough and had the spiritual taste enough to know that he wasn't supposed to rebuke everybody that came his way because he believed a certain way. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I would die for some of the beliefs I have and some of the theology I have. 
but not necessarily, what I, I would not necessarily live in turmoil to do that. I came that way a long time ago with my family after I rebuked every one of them. Every time they do so, my brother would light up a cigarette, I'd rebuke them. You know what I was doing? I was smoking. I was upstairs in the bathroom when nobody was around taking a cigarette. But I was rebuking my brother when he was smoking. Man, how pathetic. <laughs> Until I really started to realize, you know what? I had a problem and I had, to, I had to deal with it and I had to get over it. But I shouldn't have been rebuking somebody else. It was just showing my insecurity. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? And I, I can give you example after example, and you know them, of men who have talked about certain things and didn't come clean with other things. Now, I'm not telling you that we're not, we're not all perfect, that we're all perfect. We're not. But the unsaved, man, they are unsaved. What do you expect from them? We have to reach them. You know, in Birmingham, Alabama, 62% of the people in Birmingham, Alabama, don't go to church. 62%. This is the Bible Belt. It's lost a couple loops. Who's going to get them? You and me. Here's a, here's a challenge for you. There's someone you work with, someone that's around you that's looking at you. Make sure that you have taste and wisdom when you're around them. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe it's a kid who goes to church every day but doesn't understand the truth of Christianity. Make sure that in front of them you live that life. Tonight, I want to pray a blessing on you. How many of you understood what, I talk, what I'm talking about tonight? Raise your hands. I just want to pray a blessing through the wisdom of God. And you know what I want to pray? I want to pray great taste for all of us. Like Daniel, we need, we need you to pray also the answers in for families that are around you, for your friends, for your nation. Father, I thank you tonight for pure Christianity. Ah, we're aspiring to it. Lord, none of us have reached it. But oh, Lord, we just want to be a, a quest of ours. We want to reach out further and further. I don't want to condemn anyone tonight, Lord God, especially those who don't know you. Lord, I want to encourage people to go a little bit closer, grab a little bit harder, Lord God, reach on a little bit more. Lord, we see so many people, Lord, that fall in a and by our sides, Lord, pastors and evangelists and churches, Lord, that's not our criteria to look at. You are our measuring stick, Lord God. You are the one. When we keep our eyes on you, Lord God, we want to stop living horizontally and we want to live vertically, Lord God. And tonight, Lord, as we study this book of Daniel, this amazing book, as we open up the history of mankind in the next couple weeks, I pray that you open us up like you've never done before, Lord God. Make us in tune, sensitive to why we are here. We're not just studying words, but we are here, Lord God, studying ourselves. I am thankful for every life that is here, the ones that are, can't be with us tonight, Lord God, everyone, and the ones that are listening on YouTube, Lord God. I'm not interested in just having a church of followers. I'm interested, Lord, in having followers of Christ. And I'm thankful tonight that these hearts want more of you. We're so imperfect, all of us. We're so imperfect, Lord God. And all we want to do is step up a little bit closer to that perfection that you have. We want to have that good taste, that wisdom, that fear of you, that non-judging attitude that we would be able to reach to even the, even the heathens around us and they would see we have something. But we want to interpret our lives and our dreams and know, Lord God, that the purpose in us is to gain glory to you. I pray a blessing on everyone here tonight, Lord God. Bless their families, their children, Lord God, their grandchildren. Lord, may you use us like you've never used us before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand tonight, church. Amen. God bless you.